Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michian Diagnostics. In this series, we will discuss thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Michian Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. In this episode, we are throwing it back to 2015, when Dr. Lewis gave an incredible talk discussing the diagnosis of thrombotic microangiopathies. We found it so clinically relevant, we wanted to share it again. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. What I teach my fellows is every time a patient walks in with anemia and thrombocytopenia, that's TTP or HUS or something on that axis. Is that true? No, that's wrong about 98% of the time. But if you don't think about it, every time they walk in, you're gonna miss it. We care about diagnosing TTP and HUS, this axis, but especially TTP. It's a bad disease. 20% end up dead within a month or so. Even among the responders, a third of them at least relapse within the next couple of years. So it's a bad disease, and it's a bad disease that responds very well to plasma exchange. When I see as an adult doc a thrombotic microangiopathy, I diagnose it by having a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, which really just translates to schistocytes and an LDH. Somebody you trust has to sit down and look at that smear and look for schistocytes, because often those schistocytes are gonna be the thing you're hanging your hat on to make the diagnosis. And that's what you're seeing in here. These cells that are smaller than a red cell, darker than a red cell, don't have any central pallor, and have two sharp points. That's a cell that got stuck on endothelium usually, and as it moved on by, had a chunk of membrane torn off, leaving you with ideally a helmet cell or some of these other red cell fragments. Once I see that, I've narrowed it down quite a bit, but I haven't really pinned it down. Let me take a step back a second and talk about something that matters to you in two different ways. And that's von Willebrand's and how you make von Willebrand's. So this thing you're looking at here is an endothelial cell, the lining of your blood vessels. In your endothelial cells, you make von Willebrand's as a monomer. And then you stack those monomers. And that's an important stacking because until the monomers get big enough, since the monomers connect the platelets together by zippering, until they get big enough, they don't work. The bigger they get, the better they work. In patients who have TTP, what happens is some of these multimers come out and they're very, very large. And you have a protease to get rid of those ultra-large multimers, the ADAMTS13. The reason that's so important is those ultra-large multimers not only make platelets hypercoagulable like the large ones, but they make them spontaneously coagulable. So you begin to clot them up. So you've got to get rid of those things. If you don't, then those, these platelets begin to clump. As the platelets clump, they activate the complement cascade, they activate the inflammatory cascade, and they cause a lot of endothelial swelling and damage, and then coagulation. And these are fibrin strands across in here. Every time you see somebody with a thrombotic microangiopathy, without another good a very, very good explanation, you need to look at the ADAMTS13. Because if the ADAMTS13 isn't zero, unmeasurably low, then it's not TTP. Clean TTP, virtually always, leaving out maybe congenital TTP, has an Adam TS13 that's zero and has antibodies against it in adults. In kids, I think up to 10% of them will, will show up with congenital TTP, the Upshaw-Shulman syndrome, and those guys won't have antibodies and sometimes have somewhat marginal levels, but still typically very, very low levels of Adam TS13. Most of the AHUS patients, even though they have low Adam TS13s, they're not that low. They're not 3 or 5%. They're 15% and up. And there are some labs that measure down to 10 or 15% and give you less than 10 or 15%. And a lot of times when people tell me that somebody has 5% Adam TS13, what they mean is the lab said less than 5%, right? And that's only because that's the lower limit of detection. 
the other time you might want to think about an ADMTS13 is for somebody who has a disease that can hide TTP. So we've seen people with end-stage liver disease get TTP, hard to sort out in that setting. Schistocytes come with end-stage liver disease, LDH, very, very confusing, but an ADMTS13 of zero solves that confusion. Sickle cell disease, we've seen several sickle cell patients come in with TTP, very hard to sort out because their smear looks like schistocytes. Sorting out the real schistocytes from the Sickle cell schistocytes can be actually very hard to sort out. Catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, scleroderma, renal crisis. There are a number of things that can look a lot like TTP. You want that ADMTS13 as a way of ruling in TTP, as well as, more importantly for this talk, as a way of ruling it out. We regularly see people who die waiting for the ADMTS13 to come back. What about atypical HUS? So the reason for starting with TTP is that, at least in the adult world, every case of AHUS that comes in looks like TTP when they walk in the door to everybody, and they get treated like TTP. What I tell my colleagues is it's another TMA. It looks just like TTP. If you have somebody who walks in the door and they look like they have TTP, which means all the things that rule in a TMA, schistocytes, LDH, um, low platelets, and maybe a little bit of end organ damage, and you've ruled out all the other things on that list of other possibilities, then it's TTP. If it looks like TTP and they don't have an ADMTS13 that's zero, it's AHUS. What about plasma exchange for AHUS? One of the arguments I get from adults is it works. It works a lot of the time. Well, it does work to normalize the LDH and the hemoglobin and the platelets oftentimes. It doesn't work well to normalize the creatinine. The very least I would do is even in those patients who have an initial response to plasma exchange, if somebody is very averse to starting them on the appropriate drug, is I would watch that patient closely. But what I see too often is somebody begins to normalize their platelets and their hemoglobin, and everybody says, well, let's just wait it out. And while they're waiting it out, this patient goes into renal failure, and I've seen people wait it out to dialysis, which just makes no sense at all when you already knew when the ADMTS13 came back that you didn't have TTP. You were treating the wrong disease. So the Compton cascade, I don't know how you nephrologists are. When I put this up in front of my fellows, I can hear their stomachs start to rumble. So it's a multipartite cascade with part of the cascade, the alternative pathway constantly active, just like we have actually in the coagulation cascade, because just like coagulation, this cascade needs to be constantly ready to go, and it needs to be ready to explode. Right? When you need a clot, when the saber-toothed tiger gets you, you need to stop the bleeding and you need to stop it right now. In the same way, if you have an infectious problem, you need to get rolling and stop it right away. But to make that work, C3 self-activates. It actually is, is activated a little bit by water, and then the C3 activation products activate C3 even further. So it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. A positive feedback loop is what makes a nuclear reactor. It's what makes the sound that you sometimes hear when you put a microphone in front of a speaker. It's, an, it's a potentially explosive problem. AHUS is a deficiency in one of those inhibitors, or some others probably, or it's an upregulation, a gain-of-function mutation in one of the factors that upregulates the cascade, complement factor B, or in C3 itself. We've seen mutations that are gain-of-function mutations in patients. And if you have this sort of complement cascade that's unable to control itself well, then it has the propensity to get out of control. And at the end of the day, you get a problem, a process that's very similar to the TTP process. And the reason we're here, really, is because there's a drug to deal with this. I was actually a patient who died recently. The attending who was taking care of that patient quoted me as saying that there was no reason to separate AHUS and TTP because there's no difference. So you don't need to worry about it. And he was right. I did say that about 15 years ago when I was training him. But we don't say that anymore. And what, what really changed things is now we have a drug, eculizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against C5 
that blocks the Compton cascade down at the bottom. Why is that important? Because it leaves the top of the cascade open, still active, and you're able to fight off most infections, but it blocks this disease entirely. It stops the production of these end-of-the-cascade phenomena that cause the damage we were just talking about that, that generates the pathology of AHUS. Does this drug work? This looks at the, the improvement in the GFR. Patients respond to this drug very, very well. The sooner you start them on it, the better they respond. In adult patients, even patients who've been on dialysis for months, including a few patients who've been on dialysis up to a year or more, you can still generate improvement in their renal function. If you can get the patients on it before they have serious renal, renal failure, the vast majority, in some series, 90% or more of the patients will respond and not progress to have end-stage renal disease. These are patients who obviously had some renal dysfunction, and over time they improve, with improvement continuing out for a fairly long period of time. Um, rapid improvement up front, but continued improvement even over time. One of the other things that differentiates, to some extent, AHUS from TTP is that AHUS is typically triggered. Remember, it's a complement, it's the inability to control the complement cascade, so something that stimulates the complement cascade sets you off. So about 80% of people, almost, who have AHUS will present with some sort of a trigger. What kind of trigger? You know, all the things that stimulate your complement cascade. The most common is some kind of infection, and it's the entire gamut, viral and bacterial, both. Pregnancy, which from a hematologist's perspective is an awful disease in terms of stimulating autoimmunity, but also in this case, activating the complement cascade in a horrendous way. Then surgery, hypertension activates it. Um, we see it post-transplant. What happens when somebody gets AHUS? The same thing happens, it happens with TTP. It's a thrombotic microangiopathy. All the microvasculature gets damaged. A couple of things that are maybe worth mentioning kind of along the way. Again, virtually every organ is involved in this disease. One of the things I often hear is that somebody comes in with AHUS and their kidneys are shot. And then they say, well, maybe it was AHUS, but who cares? Their kidneys are shot. And one of the things we're very sensitive to, I think, these days is even when the kidneys are shot, the rest of this stuff still goes on. They still have early onset myocardial infarctions. They still get strokes. They still get CNS disease. They get skin disease. They get other kinds of problems. HUS isn't a kidney disease. HUS is a multi-system microvascular disease that affects other kinds of things. So even when the kidneys are gone, there are still other kinds of problems potentially going on. So about 15% of people with HUS will present initially without renal dysfunction. That tends to throw at least my adult docs off the mark a little bit. Makes it look much more like TTP. But the majority will present with significant renal dysfunction. We'll talk more about that in a minute. About 15% have a normal platelet count. Just had a case recently where the platelet count was 200 and some odd thousand, so HUS and TTP didn't even come up on the radar screen for quite some time. So this patient's kidneys progressively worsened while people were thinking about what this could possibly be, and the and TMAs just weren't on the radar screen. But again, 15% will have a normal platelet count. 50% of patients with HUS have initial CNS involvement, confusion, strokes, encephalopathy, significant neurologic involvement. Every time that comes up in the adult world, they say, well, it must be TTP. The incidence of CNS involvement in TTP these days is about 50%, 50 to 60%, very similar to what we see in AHUS, not much different at all. Other kinds of vasculopathy, necrotic rashes can be seen. Now, GI symptoms are common, and a third of patients with AHUS have diarrhea, right? That's confusing because when you see the diarrhea, you want to call it HUS, right? So you need to check the sugar toxin, which is a very reliable test. If the sugar toxin is negative, you should be thinking about AHUS in those patients with diarrhea and a TMA. And then lastly, you never say never, but you never see pulmonary involvement in TTP. If you have somebody who looks like they have TTP and they have significant pulmonary involvement, pulmonary hemorrhage or, or effusions or infiltrates coming up, you should be thinking about AHUS. The punchline here really is can you sort out AHUS 
clinically? And the answer is no. And the neurologic manifestations don't happen. What I hear from my adult colleagues is it's a pediatric disease. Half of the patients are adults. The renal dysfunction is pretty good, but not everybody has renal dysfunction. The LDH tends to be a little bit lower in AHUS than in TTP, but it doesn't help you. What about C3 and CH50 and things like that? C3 has to be low in AHUS, right? It's a complement dysregulation syndrome. It just has to, but it isn't. About 80% of the time, the C3 is normal in patients with active AHUS. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, um, but that's, that's the case. The other reason why you might care about the genotype is because the survival is very different. With the most common CFH mutation, the survival without eculizumab therapy is very poor overall, at least the renal failure-free survival. And whereas with MCP mutations, in general, the patients do very, very well. And you can, to some extent, stratify people's likely survival without eculizumab therapy based on their mutation, if you have a mutation. You, what you don't want to do is get a genetic panel as a way of making a diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. They come in, they look like TTP, they don't have, they have a normal ADMTS13, that's a test you do want to get stat, you're done. It's time to treat the patient. You might want to get the genetic panel for a number of reasons. I have to say one of the more common is we all think this patient has AHUS, but the insurance won't pay for it. And this has come up, at least in my world, quite a number of times. Um, or the hospital is, is balking in some way, or even the physicians sometimes balk. Um, in that case, sometimes a genetic panel is useful because if it's positive, it rolls us right into treating this patient and makes things easy. But when it's negative, you're right back where you started from. This patient probably still needs therapy. Um, I think in patients who have the diagnosis, when you're thinking about transplant for the reasons we were just talking about, it's probably worth doing. Um, patients who have the disease and, want, and are pretty clear that they are going to stop therapy, um, when I have hypercoagulable patients, I always check them for antiphospholipid syndrome. And my argument for that has been that when I find the antiphospholipid syndrome, then when they tell me they want to stop their Coumadin, I can jump up and down and scream and say, no, you absolutely can't. Um, and it's the same thing here. If you find a genetic mutation like complement factor H, it, it then gets somewhat easier to tell the patient who's, who's insisting on stopping therapy that they really absolutely can't. Not that I ever tell a patient what they can and can't do in adult medicine, but as much as I can tell them anything, I tell them you absolutely can't stop with this mutation, whereas if they have an MCP, then maybe we negotiate. The other time when you might want to think about it is the patient who has a TMA, maybe, and, and their renal disease is progressing, and we're, none of us are really quite sure what we want to do. Um, and then in C3 glomerulopathies, you may want to do it also, even if they don't have a TMA. Prior to Machon Lab coming up with this testing, the testing took about 120 days to get it done, and it cost anywhere from six to $12,000. It was obscene, plus by the time I got the answer back, it didn't matter anymore, everything had already happened. The difference now is that you can, we can give you the same gene sequencing they do, a full gene sequencing for 12 genes. You can get that full-out gene sequencing done with a two-day turnaround. So if you're on the fence and you really need this testing done, especially if you're holding therapy, or if you just want an answer between the first dose and the second dose, really, you can get it done. And you can get it done in two days by sending it down to the Machon lab, which is just down in Oakland. So what's my punchline? Somebody comes in with thrombocytopenia and anemia, they have TTP until proven otherwise. How do you prove otherwise? Often you can just think about it for a second and prove otherwise, but LDH and schistocytes. If they have LDH and schistocytes, then you need to think about all those other microangiopathic hemolytic anemias that it could possibly be. If it's not one of those, then it's TTP or it's AHUS. And you need to get an ADAMTS13 and you need to get it stat because you need to know right away. On the other hand, one of the things you get when you order it through this lab is you get me calling back and telling you what it says. And often it's useful to have somebody else to talk to about this stuff. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Meijian Diagnostics, a reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions, 
comments, or topics you'd like discussed, send an email to blood, sweat, and smears at matriondiagnostics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at matriondx. Be sure to subscribe, share, and join us next time for more coagulation information.